Okay. I lit a candle. I'm ready to do this. <laughs> Welcome to the Attorney of Review. My name's Ben. And I'm Truman. And we're going through and doing a deep dive on He-Man and the Mess of the Universe. Uh, this week we're on Episode 7, The Creatures from the Tar Swamp. Episode 8, Time Flies, Ben. Time does fly. So this week we learn a lot about the Eternian royal family and other things. What were your initial thoughts of this episode? I was super just left deflated by how it ended. I don't know if deflated is the right word. It just, the ending is, yeah, it leaves you hanging. It was not a resolution. It does. We open first on the palace. There's a ship arriving while everyone is gathered around to watch. Prince Adam's cousin, Lady Edwina, is visiting. Orko, like, I don't know how it comes about, but Prince Adam basically says his cousin's hot. I think Orko says, well, that's a really cool ship or a really pretty ship. And, and then Adam's like, wait, do you see my cousin? Not the only creepy comment made in this episode. No, just the first. The vehicle lands and a purple robed woman with just such heavy eyeshadow steps out of the ship. Yeah, heavy makeup, full lips. She's not that hot. She's like, you know, for a cartoon. Okay. She's no Jessica Rabbit. Orko is speechless at Edwina's appearance. Yeah, Orko definitely thinks she's hot. King Randor greets Edwina, saying, it's good to have you back in Eternus. So is that the name of the city? Or like the name of the palace? Because I don't think I've ever heard that name referenced like that before. Eternos. No, and Skeletor references the palace later by saying the palace of Eternia, I think. Like the Palace Eternia. So I don't know what Eternus is. I'm thinking it's like the city somehow. Like the capital city of the kingdom of Eternia. So the kingdom is Eternia and the capital is Eternus? It's my only guess at this point. We have no other context. I feel like they could have been a little bit more creative with the name of the city. High hopes. Just high hopes you have for them, Truman. Edwina approaches Prince Adam and says... Oh, is this Prince Adam? You know, the last time I saw you, you were a small child. But I swear, if we weren't cousins... So she thinks Adam's hot, too. During this shot, Tila's head is just huge. Her face is huge in the foreground, and she's just got this big, disapproving grimace on her face. She is so just not about that. She's just like, this is gross. The royals are weird. Well, it's probably like a normal... Tila jealous of women attracted to Adam. I do not know what's going on. Like, sometimes they intimate that Tila is jealous when other women find Prince Adam attractive. But it could always be something else. Like, in this case, it could be that Edwina's just being creepy, which is true. In the case where it's the song of Selyse, it could be that Selyse is being just a show-off, and Tila's not about that. There's a look she gives when Prince Adam, or is it He-Man? This He-Man does something like impressive with his muscles and she like raises her eyebrows at it. But who wouldn't? Yeah, that's that's universal. It's hard to get a read on that relationship between Tila and Prince Adam. Despite Orko being just flabbergasted at her cartoon beauty, Edwina is not into Orko. She also calls Man-at-Arms and Tila the help and Tila almost decks her. Oh, she's pissed about it. She says something like she goes on about how awful and rude she is. And then Orko thinks she's amazing and stunning. 
And Edwina walks off. She calls them. I don't know if she messes up men in arms names, but she calls Tila TB. Later, we cut to Orko outside of Edwina's door. With the glorious return of Orko's theme. Yeah, it's awesome. You get like the whole beat. Bow, 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 bow. Orko's got a present box that he has magically created for Edwina. It's a brooch, but Edwina is not really impressed by that and calls him Porco. I don't want to gloss over this because when Orko goes to knock on the door, instead of floating up there because he's like always floating instead of floating up to like you know eye level of a normal human he like grows an arm out of his hat that reaches up stretches up like a michael jordan arm from space jam and knocks up at eye level instead of just floating up there almost a little bit of like a body horror kind of thing it was a little disturbing she's not impressed by the necklace that orko gives her tila and adam show up and reassure him that you can't buy friends, and that you should just be yourself. Which I take into consideration as I consider the moral of this episode. So then Adam talks up Orko to Edwina with a flashback. Great wingman moment by Prince Adam. He's probably just trying to desperately get anybody to go after his cousin to get her to not hit on him anymore. It's not a bad strategy, although he could instead just say, hey, that's gross, please stop. Although he said... You're going to find my cousin attractive first, which isn't as weird as directly saying to your cousin, I find you attractive. Anyways, flashback. Yeah, Prince Adam and Cringer are in the tar swamps during the season of storms, which is pretty intense sounding. So there's wandering out there. So before Adam was He-Man, obviously, he's like a youth, just a youth wandering out in a swamp in a thunderstorm. So apparently the storm is strong enough that it causes some rip in the dimensional fabric and grabs Orko from his home on Trolla. So it was like a, another planet or another dimension? From his home world is what they say. So yeah, like he just ripped through a portal by this storm, which is a really powerful storm. And one more example in the thesis of Eternia being like a dead end of like dimensions where things just kind of get lost to. So this is maybe not the first time that a storm has done this or with Marlena, we saw the asteroid shower brought her spaceship down. Just all kinds of happenings causing folks to end up in Eternia. Orko hears Prince Adam and Cringer calling out for help. He pulls a golden medallion out of his the O in his shirt, I think, somehow. Yeah. Yep. Ed uses it to grow a trunk of a tree so that Prince Adam and Cringer can escape. He makes like a branch turn into a giant oaky hand and it just like grabs them and gently puts them on the shore or the solid ground. Another pre reference to NBC's classic miniseries Merlin. <laughs> really? When Merlin is but a lad and still discovering his powers, someone, I think a woman that he's sort of smitten with, falls into a bog or something. It's been a while since I've seen the show. But he's trying to save her, and he's got this branch that's not long enough. So he's like holding it out, reaching toward her, and then just with all you know his fervent hope, He's saying, grow, 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 and then the branch grows and through magic, and uh, she's able to reach onto it and is saved. 
another connection. All roads lead to Merlin. This is your once every two episodes reminder to watch NBC's Merlin. I will note here that Orko casts the spell to do this by saying a magic rhyming chant. Does he do that with other spells? He does when he does his normal magic. He says like a rhyming chant, but later that's not how the medallion works. So Orko gets them out of the swamp and he's like, yeah, no big deal. I'm Orko. I'm great. And he bumps into a tree and just drops his medallion into the swamp. Which makes me wonder if Orko, he's a little bit of a bumbling magician as we've seen so far in He-Man. Do you think that he was like that on Trolla or is it something about coming to Eternia that's caused him to become less competent? I mean, I don't know, because like he had that medallion, which means if he had the medallion on Trolla, like he is pretty powerful because that thing is like super OP, right? Did he take it from somewhere else and was running away with it at the time? We don't really know how he got it or if it belonged to him beforehand or if he just happened to have it on him. He could have stolen it and been trying to flee for his life. I would think he is like a regular level competence on his home planet, but like the consequences are lower since he's like a cartoon person. He probably lives with a bunch of other cartoon people. Like they all probably do weird stuff. So he's probably pretty normal over there. Like relatively speaking, their culture is probably more set up to handle the bumbling. The whole planet full of orcos. So the medallion is lost for now. Edwina is not impressed by the story if you think about it, she shouldn't be because or- or Prince Adam's telling the story and in the flashback, he includes the bit where Orko bumps into a tree and drops the medallion. Oh, yeah. Like, he told her that part. Like, he didn't have to, and he did. So not quite as smooth of a wingman as he could be, I suppose. Edwina is... That's the one thing that she latches onto from the story and comments that it's too bad that the medallion has been lost. Because that would be really something. It's too bad you don't have it now. And then Orko goes, hmm. A little furrowed Orko brows and rubs his invisible chin with his blue hand. We cut over to Orko's room, which is the striking thing about his bedroom is this huge, hideous, veined hand. <laughs> That's his bed. <laughs> That's his bed. And just above is a copy of his hat, but enlarged. It's like a canopy over his bed. And it's like just the same hat complete with like ear holes cut out of it, like just floating over his bed. So he's sleeping, resting on his own hand inside of himself. There's even like a decorative sleeve that it comes out of the ground on with some weird stuff poking out of it. I look like lamps or whatever. It's just so it's fantastic. I like that. So weird. It also has a like a. It looks like a table, but it's actually like a box that like a magician would use to saw somebody in half with a saw sticking out of it and some bongs looking on it. And then I actually made a little note to see what was all in the room. So he also has some portraits of like old looking Trollins because it looks like old versions of him. So I wonder if they're like the Einsteins and whatever posters of the Trollones. So I wonder if they're like who they are in relation to Orko. I guess I would have assumed parents or some other family but i mean they give you portraits of like family members or whatever he came over with nothing on him so he had to have summoned those portraits right like his room is probably just things he just poofed into existence with a little song tila arrives with man at arms looking for orko 
they mentioned that his room doesn't even seem slept in, which I don't know how you would tell because he floats and seems to be made of uh, nothing but the gown that he wears. They quickly realize that he's off to find the medallion and they need to set off to stop him from getting injured in the tar swamp. Uchi has a medal of honor from saving Adam and Cringer from the swamp, right? I guess they know, they've known him long enough now that they would know better, but, but like they would think they would be capable of surviving the tar swamp. But I guess he doesn't have his medallion anymore. So near the end of the flashback, Orko has saved Prince Adam and Cringer. They mentioned that Orko has been adopted into the royal family and the court. And King Randor presents Orko with a huge gold medallion that says hero in giant font across it. And I think this was the first time that He-Man and Masters of the Universe have done this. But there's actually sort of a funny sight gag that they don't address, but... King Randor puts the medallion around Orko's neck, and I guess it's so heavy that he just floats down toward the ground. Yeah, he can't. It's too heavy for him to fly with, so he just, like, sinks. Most of the jokes in He-Man are a really bad, obvious pun that they put right into your face. Yeah, they, like, slam it over your head with a hammer. This is not. It's pretty subtle. Like, blink-and-you-miss-it type joke. I don't think I've seen anything like that in He-Man so far. Orko has made it to the swamp, poking around, runs almost into Beastman, who hears a noise that Orko makes by slamming into a rock on accident, but does not actually notice him. How would Orko make a sound slamming into a rock? He's like made of fabric, practically, but I guess it's uh, loud enough that Beastman's beastly ears can hear it anyway. Yeah, maybe Beastman has the senses of a beast beast <laughs> the proportionate hearing of a beast uh skeletor and evelyn are also there with the primeval potion which will bring back prehistoric monsters to attack eternia skeletor goes on a whole monologue about it like he just straight up he actually he's a very direct plan this time he's going to summon like with the primeval potion is somehow going to bring prehistoric animals back from the swamp and then beast man's going to control them and they're going to go storm the castle bing bang boom easy peasy yeah, reasonably straightforward. Certainly better than the time corridor. Yeah, much more direct. A swamp creature startles Orko, who reveals himself by flying randomly through the swamp. Eva Lynn sort of chases after him, but instead mutters a spell. So her spells also are rhyming couplets, too. I don't know what that says about magic in this world. Most of the time, you have to chant something that rhymes to get it to work. Most of the time. Or you zap something. So nonverbal spells are all about zapping or ropes, I guess, as Evelyn has done in the past. Verbal spells are rhyming. Anyway, she rhymes her way into summoning some magic wings that attach themselves to Orko. Oh, yeah. And then fly him back into Skeletor's grasp. That's so weird. So then they uh, pour the primeval potion into the swamp, which summons some creatures, some like pterodactyl looking things, and also a T-Rex with a mustache. It doesn't have a snout like a T-Rex does. It's like its face is like smoosh a little bit, and it's got like this darker ridges that look like a mustache on its face, I guess. It's hard to describe, but it's just a big dinosaur, a big purple dinosaur that's totally not Barney. Skeletor commands Beastman to, in turn, command it 
which he does by growling. And it turns out that that works. Do you think he has to use different means of communication to control different types of animals? He summoned the giant caterpillar just with telepathy. I don't even remember if he did anything directly for the dragons in the, the dragon episode. And the swamp bat, several episodes ago, he just egged on verbally, like, get him. So we do have a variety of techniques thus far. We cut over to Tila and Man-at-Arms in a hover car. Tila offhanded mentions, good thing Adam decided not to come. He means well, but his bumbling would have gotten in the way. That's what she thinks of him, right? This is just bumbling, lazy dude. Or no, this isn't really lazy, but she has a positive perception of him. As a person, but not as an effective person. And Man-at-Arms says, well, if the least he can do is get He-Man out here. Or if he gets He-Man out here, that's the, he'll done his part. Yeah, which is a great wink-wink to the audience, since Man-at-Arms is one of the like three people that knows He-Man Prince Adam's secret. Segway to Prince Adam. He's on the ground right below, transforms into He-Man before setting off into the swamp. So Beast-Man, or I think the Drac, well, they don't call it the Dracodon yet, but the, the Mustache T-Rex, which I'm going to keep calling it that because it totally has a mustache, like senses something, Beast-Man notices the Wind Raider, he hears it coming, and like tells Skeletor, and Skeletor's like, I know that. And so I'm like, take care of it. They send the little pterodactyls after it, and it breaks a wing and it starts to crash. And then something I noticed is that it like faded to black like there would have been a commercial there. I've never noticed that in the show before. I guess usually they do a better cut, a better job of cutting those out. It was like twice in this episode that I noticed it. He-Man, the animation, storyboarding, whatever, is jumpy. So you wouldn't notice if they just rammed two scenes right next to each other. Yeah. Sometimes they have the interstitial glowing background and then he-man sword kind of spins and it gives the he-man and then cuts to another scene but sometimes they just cut but that's more of like a, a jump what do they call it in radio where it's like the stinger or whatever like little stitch thing i guess where it's like a break point in the paragraph i guess i don't know i feel like that would be this like a transition between scenes i don't know if they would put that at a commercial unless it's like it's the beginning of a after a commercial break. That makes me want to pay more attention to the action surrounding the He-Man sword break and see if it does actually like describe the plot arc through the episode. From the rising action or whatever, or what do you mean? Does an episode of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe actually follow the normal rising action, whatever, falling action plot structure? I'm sure it does on a very loose scale, right? Yeah, like you're establishing action, like here's the characters for the episode, here's a problem that's going to arise, some sort of triggering action, Skeletor shows up, they have to fight it through various struggles, then they solve it, and then they have like a falling whatever resolve issue and a post-action. Usually like a 30-second scene, not even a 10-second scene where someone makes a joke and everyone laughs. So after we come back from commercial, He-Man sees the ship hit, rushes over to find Tila and Man-at-Arms saved by Stratos. Happened to be flying by. Skeletor arrives and threatens the group with the Trachodon and an extended lunch metaphor. 
Oh, it was so great. First off, he calls He-Man He-Fool when he shows up, which was very good. And then, uh, so, like, he busts out the Dracodon and is not just a Dracodon, a hungry Dracodon. And we are taking him to lunch at the palace. And then, like, one of the pterodactyls grabs He-Man and then Skeletor hits him with, I'm sorry, He-Man, but you weren't invited. Yeah, it was awesome. It was great. Skeletor is such a good show skeleton like he's got the razzle dazzle oh he really does he's an excellent villain just hits it all the high notes there was something else that happened too oh it went in the middle of like when skeletor shows up first he knows what orcos is like he says this trollin is doesn't matter or something so like skeletor is aware of where orco is from i noticed i mean i guess his skele viewer can presumably see into other worlds or other dimensions. Yeah, I would think so. So after Skeletor's excellent extended lunch metaphor, He-Man is grabbed by a dino bird. Stratos flies after He-Man and gets the dino bird to chase him into a tree where it crashes and then drops He-Man. I don't know how you taunt the pterodactyl, but Stratos manages to do it by just making fun of it. And so it chases after him. He-Man sets off to find Man-at-Arms and Tila, who are fending off the other dino bird with literal sticks. They're like long sticks, at least, I guess. At one point, Tila has what looks like a fashioned baton that was in Tila's quest episode when she fights the Shadow Beast. I guess they're proficient with staves, but I don't know. Man-at-Arms has gadgets all over his body. You've got to have something on him more useful, which he literally uses later in the episode, like a wrist shooter or something. But He-Man shows up to grab the dinosaur bird by its tail and like spins it around a few times and then throws it off into the background. And once again, a flying creature is defeated by being thrown off screen somehow, and it doesn't come back. It just says, I'm done. I'm out. Wings are not that useful in this in Eternia. Not useful enough anyway. We cut over to the palace where Edwina is in like a storage basement trying on various crowns. I, mean, I know it's like intended to be she's lusting after the riches, right? Where she just wants precious things because it's jewelry and crowns and stuff. But it's, it's like red is like she wanted the throne to me. Like she was trying to put on the crown. So she was like, I don't know, wishing she was king or queen or whatever. I feel like in fiction, that's usually what that symbolism means. She's interrupted by King Randor, who calls all the stuff down there, like, gaudy. Trinkets? Something like that. And he says, come, I'll show you some real sights. Which <laughs> is either suggestive, but anyway, turns out to be the Trachodon, which King Randor also recognizes immediately. He knows things, man. He's got a good idea of the history of his planet. He's like, yeah, that's been extinct for centuries or whatever. It's been extinct for a long time, and he knows that. The Draconon starts headbutting the castle, and then the king just surrenders. He just, like, straight up, cool, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, he does look lovingly at Marlena and mentions that in order to protect her and the kingdom, he'll have to surrender. I feel like he gives up so easy. From Randor's perspective though this is the eighth time in the chronicles that we have available to us 
and probably the thousandth time in King Randor's reign that Skeletor has gotten up to trouble and then He-Man has saved the day. So at this point, if I'm King Randor and I'm thinking, you know, what I really want to do is relax and eat a sandwich and, I don't know, watch techno jousting or whatever they do in Eternia. I don't really want to have to fight Skeletor and it's like work to try to oppose him. It's all going to work out the same in the end. I may as well just go chill in the dungeon for a little while. Just take a little break, just a breather for a second. He knows that He-Man's going to show up sooner or later, so he might as well just relax in the dungeon for a little bit. It's not that bad. So this is another point where there was like a little like fade to black commercial break thing. Because when he says, oh, I have to surrender to keep you safe, and then it like blacks out and then fades back in. Yeah, and I guess this would be about the time for a commercial break. The first one was like a third through, and this is maybe two thirds. And they're both like little cliffhangery type things. This could be the point where they knew they were producing it for television, right? Like they weren't producing it, just producing episodes. <laughs> you mean it's like a passion project? <laughs> just for the love of the game, Truman. But I mean, like, like they were doing their pitch episodes first. They produced those. And then at a certain point, they had actual, they had to actually produce it for like television. So they knew to cut it for commercial breaks. Or it could be that this was like the 50th episode they produced and they finally figured out how to set up their episode in a way that gave them commercial breaks. I might lean on that last theory. (laughs) So King Randor and Marlena and Edwina are in the dungeons. Orko is thrown in. They have a different voice actor for the queen in this scene. She sounded different. I, I think I noticed it. It was different. Edwina sort of whines at Orko to help them escape. Orko chants another rhyming spell that's meant to make the dungeon bars disappear, but instead teleports himself and Edwina out into the forest. Edwina was right to try to get Orko to do it because he does have magic, but she was like super whiny about it. Randor and Marlena give each other a look that they pretty much think she sucks. And like, as soon as they're teleported out of the castle, Edwina just like, all right, I'm out. See you guys. But the Trachodon attacks. Orko rushes in to try to help her out of the way. By, like, pulling at her arm or something? (laughs) Yeah, but he still runs in there to show his heroic efforts to keep her safe. There's a Trachodon there. He could have run away. But luckily for Edwina, He-Man and Battlecat are there. He-Man tells Stratos to fly Tila and Man-at-Arms to the castle. He's holding them as if... Tila and man-at-arms are like small kittens by the scruff of their neck. I didn't notice. That's awesome. So Stratos flies off carrying his precious bundle and He-Man, oh, tries to punch the Trachodon. He just punches it in the foot like he did the the statue with Colossal Awakens. He punched that one in the foot too. But it doesn't do anything. It's tough. I guess they're setting up a... Situation where He-Man has met his match. It's just this random, like, creature from the prehistoric past that his punches don't hurt. He punched an Eldritch Horror, didn't he? He punched the ground, and the Eldritch Horror fell into a bottomless pit. So he punched a chasm that was deep enough for an Eldritch Horror to fall into. But he can't punch a dinosaur's foot. This prehistoric dinosaur's hide is too tough. Meanwhile, 
Skeletor and Evil Lynn are sitting in the throne room when Tila and Man at Arms arrive. That is really interesting because Skeletor is sitting there in the King's throne and Evil Lynn's in the Queen's throne and Beast Man's elsewhere in the room being the help. And like they're clearly partners. And Skeletor is like, to my conquest of Eternia. And then Evelyn's like, you mean ours. She's still sitting on the throne, though. And Skeletor is cool with that. So they're clearly like equals of some sort. Yeah, they both have that zapping power. Game recognizes game, Truman. I found via the He-Man wiki that this is one of only two times that Skeletor actually makes it to the castle throne room. And all it took was a dinosaur. That was all it took. It goes to show that the simpler the plot, the more likely it is to succeed. Less things to go wrong. Beastman tries to drop a statue on Tila and Man-at-Arms, but Man-at-Arms blasts the statue back on top of Beastman with his wrist laser. And he gives it a techno zap, and it falls back over on him. Stratos grabs Eva Lynn and flies her out a window and then drops her kind of next to a spire, and it does that thing where her cape catches on one of the spires and she's suspended in the air. Hoisted by your own petard isn't this, right? A petard is not that, right? It's not a cape. Was she hoisted by her own petard? What, what is a petard? is a petard? Oh, it's like a grenade. A small bomb made of a metal or wooden box filled with powder used to blast down a door or to make a hole in a wall. Where the heck does that phrase come from? So it's not hoisted by your own petard. Never mind is a phrase from a speech in William Shakespeare's play Hamlet that has become proverbial. The phrase meaning is literally that a bomb maker is blown up by his own bomb and indicates an ironic reversal or poetic justice. So it is not hoisted by your own petard. Well, she's hoisted by her cape. It <laughs> doesn't quite roll off the tongue that as well. No, not at all. Tila and man-at-arms confront Skeletor, but Skeletor calls in the Trachodon, or the Trachodon just happens to wander by and bursts through the wall. Yeah, Skeletor says something. Well, you have to defeat my pet first! And then the Trachodon just busts his head into the wall and, like, it's like, here I am. And that's it. Like, he doesn't really threaten anything. Like, his whole body's in there. It's just his head sticking into the throne room. So earlier, King Roland gives up at the sight of the Trachodon after it's headbutted the wall a few times, hasn't even broken it at that point, just cracked it a little bit. And another case here where the Trachodon just makes an appearance and everyone is terrified. He-Man punched his foot and it didn't do anything. Prehistoric Eternia must have been extremely dangerous. Can you imagine the extinction event that cleared out all these animals? Like how intense it had to have been? Like three asteroids, I bet at least. He-Man and Orko arrive... Orko notices something shining on the back of the Trachodon, which turns out to be the medallion that Orko posits stuck to the Trachodon's back when it uh, excavated itself from the swamp. And then he just like flies up and retrieves it. Well, he retrieves it and he's like having trouble getting it out. And then he wishes it free. Like, I wish this thing would get loose and then it magically gets itself loose. So this is where previously we had the rhyming couplet magic. And now we have the wish based magic. Yeah, like the, the before the medallion even worked with the rhyming, and now it's a wish-powered medallion or whatever. He-Man's like, hey, figure out a way to get rid of it. I'll distract it. And he distracts it by throwing his sword at it. Which bounces off. Yeah, really ineffective. I guess it looks at him then, and then he chucks like a stone chair thing in its mouth. I don't know if that qualifies as a boulder, 
but this also fails to defeat the Trachodon. So, so far we're 0 for 2, punching and boulders. He-Man's going to have to try the old run off a cliff or fall into a hole method next yeah. if something doesn't happen first. This is going to escalate up all of his defeat options. So Edwina notices that Orko has the medallion and saw that the wish magic works, tries to convince him to ditch everybody and wish them somewhere safe. Like, we can be rich, just the two of us, and I'll be your best friend. And does the literal, like, eyelash fluttering gesture at Orko. <laughs> and Orko's like, oh, no, you just want me because I've got something you want. And I wish that none of this had ever happened. And it works. And that's it. So everything disappears. The Dracodon disappears. Skeletor disappears. Evelyn disappears. Beastman, they forgot existed. And that's it. That's the that's how the problem solved. And so the, also the medallion also disappears too. How did the medallion know what this was? I guess it knows context. I guess. Not some like monkey's paw sort of situation. What were you going to say? Just that it is deeply unsatisfying. It is so unsatisfying. That's how it was solved. I guess like most of the time they just solve their problems by chucking it over a cliff. So it's not like it's that much different. But like I wish... The events of this episode had not happened, and they didn't. Yeah, we could have just not watched it. Except, and we'll get there shortly, but we wouldn't have learned uh, important moral. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So in the meantime, we cut over to the throne room where they're lauding Orko and chastising Edwina. She starts to leave, is actually banished from Eternia until she can get a better attitude but orko gives her a present which is kind of like a jack-in-the-box except that a hideous skeleton head springs out and scares her everybody laughs yeah ha 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 end episode what do you think you learned today truman i learned not to write a story that resolves with a deus ex machina because mm. it's extremely dumb there was a moment i'm swinging for the fences here there was a moment in the middle of the episode where Tila and Man-at-Arms are flying in the Wind Raider hover car, and the pterodactyl dinosaur bird chomps on its wing and it starts to go down, and it explodes, but they're saved by Stratos. And I just had this visceral reaction that the moral was going to be, you should always wear your seatbelt. Uh, no. Damn it. It is not wear your seatbelt. Although the keys to this... We're in this episode. All right, what was what did we learn? So Prince Adam comes on and says, Today's episode was about something more precious than gold or presents. Friendship. You can't buy friendship. Just be yourself and be honest. And then you'll know the friends you make will be real ones. Okay, fine. But my moral will save your life. It's true. Friends will only sometimes save your life. Seatbelts almost always. At least it was supported by the episode. So that's an acceptable moral. And they like literally said it at like at one point in the episode. They said it near the end. Oh, I thought Orko had learned something, something. You can't buy friends. I think Tila quips to Prince Adam when he's presenting her with the Jack in the Box present. And in the beginning, when he first brings the present over to Edwina, they're like, don't, you can't buy friends. Just be yourself. Yeah, I thought that was too on the nose. It was directly on the nose. And they went for the nose this time. 
So what are your grand thoughts for this episode? I wanted to know about Orko's relationship with magic, given that they paint the amulet as Orko's kind of key to being able to perform magic, but he also can just do it all the time. It just seemed like the medallion worked differently than his magic. It was more powerful than his magic, but it worked on the same scale, or the, not the same scale, like the same sort of type of magic, like conjuration or like just alteration or whatever kind of things, but on a bigger scale than what he can do and not messed up because every time Orko normally does a spell, does something weird and goofy that he didn't intend. So the medallion is more reliable. Yeah. It could be like a wand or a focus for his powers where it actually works because he's using the correct device to focus it. I don't know. Actually, all of my post-episode thoughts that I wrote down are about Orko. So Orko's coloring changes constantly in this episode. It does? Yeah, he's mostly blue. Sometimes he's green, and he's often like shades uh, in between. His hand in the bedroom, I think, is like more purple colored. I did not notice. I thought I'd pay attention. So I was sort of wondering if he's just constantly changing colors, and it would actually be reasonable since he's literally from a different world. Adam and He-Man's skin tone changes too. Not probably as much as that, but yeah, when he switches back and forth. Also, because Orko is from a different world, the going back in time makes Orko's magic power stronger that we got from the Time Corridor episode makes even less sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would have to be like coming from the same power source of the planet that it would be more souped up, which if he's from a different place, it depends. It's not like a hard magic rules kind of show, but... If the entire universe's magic works on the same thing, it could be that the planet, its energy source is what powers the magic, and that would give him more power. But if he's from a different planet, is it a different source? Yeah, sort of a magic is like universe background radiation that's slowly dissipating. Yeah. All right. So there's a royal family that is beyond just the king and queen and Adam. So, like, do you think that this is definitely a feudal system, right? Do you think Edwina's parents are like a duke or duchess underneath the king, or is it like a different kingdom? Do they name where she comes from at the beginning of the episode? No, they don't. She's just visiting and hasn't been there in a long time. So she's like normally stays at wherever her estates are with her family and hasn't been there since she was a kid, or at least since Prince Adam was a kid. But that's where they mention that it's been a long time since she's visited Eternus, right? Yeah. Which is either, yeah, maybe that is just the city. Because they call Eternia, it feels more like a kingdom or a country. Yeah. Because, right, in the Song of Selyse, when they're talking about the danger that Yogg poses, they say that Yogg could destroy their kingdom and also could destroy all of the way up to and including Eternia somewhere else. So it's not, Eternia is not the world. I mean, I think Eternia is the planet, but Eternia is a kingdom on the planet of Eternia. <laughs> and Eternus is the capital city. Yeah, so the kingdom of Eternia on the planet Eternia, because either they named the planet after their kingdom, or they named the kingdom after the planet. I don't know. So there's no hard evidence, I guess, either way, if it's like, yeah, Duke, Duchess kind of relationship, or if it's 
another kingdom. And then Randor didn't marry into power, though. He was royal blood, like Marlena's uh, his wife. So like he was the heir to the throne or he seized the throne, I guess. So I don't know. Do you have a strong feeling either way if Edwina's from another kingdom or like a sub district of Eternia, the country? I have no, no leanings as of yet. There's some royal estates that they, they hang out at and like in a normal royal family situation, like the king lives at the castle or the main city and inhabits the throne. And then the rest of the royal family has like their royal estates that they live at and protect or whatever. So I don't know. Remains to be seen. Chalk up to gathering evidence. Yep. Yep. All right. Blow my mind, Truman. I'm trying to figure out how to best present this for maximum drama. So in the episode, Edwina, one of her personality traits is to constantly belittle the other characters by calling them variations on their actual name. She calls Tila TB. She calls Orko Porco. She also calls Orko Gorpo, G-O-R-P-O. Yeah. And that is notable because Gorpo was actually Orko's original name during pre-production of He-Man <laughs> and the Masters of the Universe. So they, they did a little Easter egg to themselves. And I don't know how they got from Gorpo to Orko. I mean, I know how they got there phonetically because they sound the same. But how do you say, look, okay, Gorpo is, I get it. It's a magical creature name in this magical fantasy land. But it's a little too dumb. We need something that's a little snappier. Yeah. Give us some hard consonants in there. And you use that to arrive at Orko? There's a lot better names they could have come with, I think. But I'm satisfied with Orko. I feel like it fits his, his personality. Gorpo seems more like a Marx brother. Groucho and Zeppo and Gorpo. Which is Orko's personality is a Marx brother. Yeah. That's all I got. That was my big ending. I don't know what I was expecting. I thought it was like some <laughs> a huge reveal that actually Edwina is evil in or something or something crazy. No, I don't have anything as big as that. Although I did notice for the first time in this episode that Tila's uniform, she wears like a white costume and then uh, right on her chest, she has these like gold filigree, like it looks like curling ram's horns. And Evelyn has the same thing, but in purple. Oh, yeah, she does. It's like just an inverted color scheme. It's just like they did a color swap of her. And that was Evelyn and Tila. So I don't know what that means. I guess we'll find out that it means nothing. <laughs> All right. You got anything else? Nope, that's it. We'll see you next time on the Eternia Review.